I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Showing growers how to benefit from the amazing critters living beneath the soil surface, Jill Clapperton says no-till not only improves soil structure and stops erosion, but also is having a far-reaching impact on consumer food preferences and human health. An internationally known soil health specialist and rhizosphere ecologist, Clapperton analyzes the relationships between organisms and their environments to more effectively manage and benefit from the long-term biological fertility of our soils. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lassiter talks with Clapperton about the importance of no-till in building healthy soil structure. Tune in as they discuss what happens to soil biology when switching from conventional tillage to no-till, how long it takes to see the benefits of switching, the link between plant diversity and soil structure, why sulfur is important for developing plant nutrients, and much more. Jill, tell me a little of your background, where you grew up, how you got into what you're doing now, etc. I grew up mostly in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I went to the University of Calgary. I was interested in plants, mostly. So plant biochemistry, plant physiology, and my uncle had a farm, and we used to go out to the farm fairly regularly, and my dad used to go up to the Peace River in the far north, and we used to spend a lot of time on the land, and I just really was interested in farming and how we grew food, and I also became very interested in traditional medicine as well, like how plants can actually be medicinal, and that's how I got started. So you were a kind of a city girl, huh? Very much so. Well, you mentioned the Peace River. That's one of the places I've wanted to go for a long, long time, and it's up in the middle of nowhere, not easy to get to, but there's some really good no-tillers up there. They've been to a couple of our conferences over the years, and I think there's one guy who's got like 14,000 acres with fields a mile long. That would be right. Peace River is big country. And that is the Northern Great Plains, the true Northern Great Plains. Right. So what happened after you got out of school? Well, I was a very lucky person because the day after I defended my thesis for my PhD, I was called by Dr. Wayne Linwall from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and he offered me a job. There you go. So you are a rhizopere ecologist. Can you define that for our listeners? Sure. The rhizosphere is the root of the plant. It's the soil attached to the root, and it's the area that is influenced by the root. So it is very much a place where soils, plants, and all microorganisms, bacteria, and microarthropods, and anything that live in the soil interact, because it's the area that is most biologically active, because it's bathed in root exudates, which are amino acids, organic acids, carbohydrates, I mean, lots of really good things come out of the roots, and so everybody hangs out around the roots. So you spent a long time at Lethbridge, right? I did, 16 years. Okay, and then you spoke at a couple of our national no-tillage conferences, and you've spoken at the Stripto conference. 
You kind right. of become the expert on what was going on under the soil for no-tillers around the world, don't you think? I would say I became one of them, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So explain what you have to offer to no-tillers and why they need to follow your work. You were always a very popular speaker at our meetings, so uh, tell me. Well, that's always nice to people. hear. Yeah. No, you did really <laughs> well. Mostly, I was talking about how important it is to undisturb the soil because the soil is a habitat. And that's the thing that we often forget. We think about the soil, we're standing on it, it's muddy on our boots, the cattle are pugging it, whatever. And we're not thinking about the fact that it's like stomping on a great big city. And there's all this infrastructure below ground. There are roads, because there have to be roads. I mean, there are roads for things to get around in. The microbes need to move on water films throughout the soil. And the microarthropods and the protozoa, the microbes, because protozoa would be also considered microbes, protozoa have to be able to move on those water films too in order to eat up the bacteria and the fungi. And the nematodes are also moving around in these waterways. They're like canals. We'll call them microscopic canals. And what's flowing around on these little tiny waterways that are between the particles of soil are protozoa, nematodes, and they're all there to feed on the microbiology, which are the bacteria and the fungi. And they're all around the roots because that's where all the activity is. And we need them because bacteria and fungi can become far too populous if they're not preyed on by protozoa and nematodes and microarthropods. And so what you have is you have this food web where you start with the microbiology, the bacteria and the fungi, and then you start moving out. You get the protozoa, you get the nematodes, then you start getting microarthropods, which are columbola and mites and things like that. And then you get into ants, termites, and earthworms at the far end of it. But all of them are there because of plant roots. And plant roots, I mean, they grow at different depths, they exude different things, and they exude different things depending on where they are and how much nutrient they have available to them. So for example, plant roots will become, the root exudates will become semi-acidic if they're trying to get phosphorus and calcium and it's all bound up. And I think the message that I tell people, at least in the no-till world, is that when we can not disturb the habitat, then these organisms can build and they can build superstructures. And we know that infiltration becomes so much better. And infiltration is a really good measurement a really good sort of indirect way to look at soil structure. Because if your soil structure is really good, then your infiltration will be really good as well. And so as your infiltration measurements increase, so you know that you have better soil structure, you know that your soil is working better. The other thing I'm going to say is that it's not enough to just no-till. No-till doesn't work without rotation. It's a system. No-till is a tool within a system. And we need the whole system to be working in order to really have what we'll call an agroecosystem. Right. So one of the things is that we have to try and pay the best attention we can to rotation. And how do we increase plant diversity and things like that? So one of the messages that I like to convey to every farmer is that the more plant roots we can have on the ground at any one time or over a long period of time, the better off we are and the better soil structure we'll have. Right. And that means our soil will work for us. 
Well, one of the things you always did, our farmers would know a little about soil biology and soil health, but you were able to explain it in a way that they could understand and relate to it. You were always really good with that. And you could tell by you finishing your talk and being out in the hallway and 20 or 30 people would keep you there for an hour. (laughs) So if you're a conventional tiller and you switch to no-till, are you going to get this underground productivity increase all by itself or you got to do something special? Well, first of all, if you deem conventional and you switch to no-till or you switch to a more conservation agriculture approach, then it's going to be really important that you start from a good place. And the reason I say that is because it's very clear that when you switch over to no-till, it's not always great. It's not always what you think it's going to be. You think, okay, it's going to be great right away. And most times when people switch over... They experience yield declines almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you'll hear is like, yeah, well, that no-till is no good. But I want you to think about what happened. So I want you to think about, as somebody who's making the transition, I want you to think about uh, maybe you've weaned calves or you've weaned animals at some point. What's happened is that all of a sudden you have got biology. So all of a sudden you have stopped disturbing the infrastructure and these organisms that are in the soil, the ones that are remaining, all of a sudden they can start building. So they start using every resource available to them to start building infrastructure. That means they start using every mineral nutrient. They start using every bit of carbon. They start using every protein, every lipid, everything that comes out of that root, they start using it to build infrastructure. Just like we would do after a tornado. I'm on the plains right now. After a tornado, what happens? Everybody starts rebuilding. They clear up all the clutter and they pile it all up and then they start rebuilding. And all the resources of the community go into rebuilding. Well, this is the same thing that's happening in the soil. Everything in the soil is starting to rebuild. And it's like, whoa, yeah, we can rebuild. And so now it starts building like crazy. But now what happens is your plants are totally under stress because every resource is going to the microbes because they are so much better at competing for soil resources compared to the plants. And so the plants are definitely seeing lack of nitrogen. They look lethargic. They look like they're missing fertilizer. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I switched to no-till. Now I have to keep fertilizing like crazy. Well, the thing is, is that when you switch to no-till, especially if you haven't switched from a forage crop or a cover crop or a pasture, then you are going to have to actually use more fertilizer. There's no way around it. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of farmers make when they switch to no-till. They hear about the stories of longtime no-tillers reducing their fertilizer use and fertilizer being more efficient and think if they swap over, they're immediately going to get the benefit. Well, they don't. How long does it take to get the benefit of that fertilizer? Well, you'll get the benefit of your fertilizer immediately, but because you're going to increase your amount of fertilizer. But what you're going to see is the transition to no-till is going to depend. It can take you up to five years or more, depending on your rotation. If you can put companion crops, let's say, in your corn, or you can relay crop um, your beans, if you can keep a plant in the ground year-round, you're going to see that you're going to make the transition a whole lot faster. And you can make it in 18 months, 
or you can make it in five years, depending on what your level of comfort is with plant diversity. Because it's the diversity of roots that are going to rebuild your soil and feed your underground community while they rebuild this resource. And if you can put deep roots and medium level roots and shallow roots in the ground all at one time and really feed the below ground community, they'll start to recycle. And then everything will start to recycle and things will start to become more of a system, in which case you'll benefit from the system. Right. Well, one of the problems we have in the Corn Belt is these no-tillers strictly corn and soybeans. They don't diversify their rotation enough. Yeah, that's true. And yet we look at the margins on corn and beans right now and go, ooh, maybe we should think about something else. We know that we can plant companions in corn and they work really well. I mean, we've proven it through Practical Farmers of Iowa have done experiments. I know that in Iowa, there's a number of farmers that are relay cropping beans with buckwheat and various other crops, and they're experimenting more with those crops. And now we've got some really good new implements. I mean, I know that Dawn Equipment has made some really interesting rollers that go between the rows. And I think that the technology has caught up with our ability to increase the diversity while we still maintain our cash, so to speak, corn and soybean crops. Right. Are we going to see the need for getting livestock on these acres with uh, maybe lambs <laughs> or beef cattle? That is going to really depend. I mean, we know that in our I states, which are big corn bean states with the big deep soils, that most of the fences have gone away and they're going to have to be using a lot of electric fence and learning some new techniques or bringing other enterprises onto the farm. And that's not an easy thing to do. Some people will do it. I know some of them have. Some of them won't, and that's fine too. You can still have the benefit of cover crops without grazing them. Think about the fact that now you've reduced your weed pressure, so now you don't have to spray more herbicides. People go, yeah, but the seed, you know, the cost of the seed. Yeah, but if you figure in the cost of the seed and take out the cost of your herbicides and your insecticides and your fungicides, then your seed actually lowers your cost of production. So, I mean, there's a number of ways to think about it. If you don't want to put cattle on, then that's okay too because there are increased expenses to handling cattle. Now all of a sudden I have to have solar chargers. I have to have electric fence. I have to partner with somebody who has animals. I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't. And I can't go to Florida in January because i got to stay home and take care of these cows now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's all of that as well. I mean, I know that I'm looking at a herd of cattle right now, and we're planting cover crops and forages crops in order to add that livestock in. But I'm lucky. I mean, I also have grazing acres on the ranch, so I don't have to worry. That's not something that everybody has the luxury of, but right now I have more grazing acres than I have cropping acres, so it's easy for me to add the livestock, whereas anybody who's only into cropping, that's a different proposition. And I know there's a number of people that have been partnering with livestock operations in order to do this, and everybody's learning. I mean, the thing is, there's a really steep learning curve here, not only in terms of like, well, what are my cover crops worth? Is this worth it to somebody who has cattle? And then it's how do you price and how do you monitor the grazing and how do you make sure that hasn't turned your ground into concrete? I mean, there's a lot of issues that you may not even want to deal with if you are a cropping specialist. I mean, and that's fine. You don't need livestock to make this work. 
you don't. It's going to make it work differently, might speed things up, but it might also slow you down because, well, things get away. Sheep in particular are really good at getting out of fences and wandering around the place. And how do you find them in a corn crop? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that it's going to be for some people and not for others. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. And you're going to add diversity in a different way. And you're going to be mulching and rolling and all of those things. And that's all going to be fine. And you're going to reduce your weed pressure. You're going to not be using nematicides. You're going to see changes in your insect pressure. You're going to see changes in your diseases. So all of that's a really good thing. Yeah. I uh, went back and looked at a couple articles we had done on you earlier, and you got some points. One of them, you said you got to look at several growing cycles. You can't expect to do this just in one cycle, and you kind of got to be patient. Can you elaborate on that? (laughs) You do. And that's really what we were talking about earlier, was that this isn't going to happen overnight, because if you just feel like you cannot implement covers, or you can't implement companion cropping or relay cropping or any of these things that would increase diversity. Let's say you're just like, I've never done this. I'm not sure that I can do this or you're going to take baby steps at first. Well, okay, you're going to take longer. You just are. So you better be patient and you're just going to have to let your soil build up slowly because it's going to take a much longer period of time for it to wean back into being biologically active and for it to rebuild the infrastructure. Because that's the one thing that diversity does. When we can add companion crops and cover crops and relay cropping, we can rebuild the soil infrastructure much faster. We have more resources. Otherwise, it's sort of like you rebuilding from the tornado by yourself. And trying to rebuild the barn and the house and all the roads and all your paths and all your fence lines by yourself. It's interesting you mentioned relay cropping, intercropping, because 20, 30 years ago, there were a lot of people kind of looking at it and some people did it. And then it went away for a while. Now we've got it back. It's just like cover crops. I grew up on a farm north of Detroit and my dad was seeding cover crops in the 40s and early 50s. And then we got away from it. Yeah. I mean, we knew So in the late 1800s and early 1900s, all the agricultural schools knew that if we added a legume into the rotation or some kind of a mixed forage that we increased yields. And remember, that was before we had chemical fertilizers. And so just as we are now, everybody was trying to rebuild yields. Everybody was trying to rebuild yields. Everybody was trying to get more yield, have better grain crops. Everybody was. And in order to do that, you really wanted to get after it. You knew about clover. And you were seeding clover in your corn because that was well proven. I mean, in Illinois, they had shown that in in the 1890s. They already had extensive studies that showed that if you had clover, you got more yield. So people knew that these things worked. But then we got fertilizer, and I'm not taking anything away from fertilizer, but then we got the salesman that came with the fertilizer, and we got that whole system. And all of a sudden, the farmers were plugged into this system where they didn't have to think anymore. It was (laughs) Betty Crocker farming, right? You just open the bag of seed, stick it in the ground, add the chemicals that everybody says, and off you go. And it was miraculous. I mean... Let's face it, all of a sudden you didn't have to work nearly as hard. You didn't have to think about, well, what plants am I going to grow? Or the fact that your clover didn't go and you got clover weevils in there and they ate up all your cover and now how are you going to get nitrogen? I mean, you didn't have to think about that anymore. Really early on, 
Like in the time when before we really even had hybrid corn or anything like that, everybody was using horses. And you had to have forage crops because that was your right. plow. That was your tractor. And I was astounded to know when I was reading Norman Borlaug's biography that when you took the horse out, all of a sudden you got more than 50% of your acres back. Right. You didn't have to grow oats anymore to feed the horses either. No. So all of a sudden, I could actually crop and make some more money on my farm. And the bringing in the tractor just changed everybody's life on the farm. And fertilizer changed everybody's life. And herbicides and all these chemicals changed everybody's life. But then we started to do, I think, what humans often do. If a little is good, more is better. More seed, well, okay, that's not as bad. But more chemicals, more of this. And we decided, oh, well, this is easy. I'm just going to plant more of this and more of this. And eventually, as Mother Nature will do and how things work, all the insects got used to everything we were using. All the fungi adapted and the bacteria adapted to what we were doing. And the plants were bred on high fertilizer rates because, I mean, that's how they were bred. And all of a sudden, the whole system was about excess. And we have a system right now that is about excess. And now we can't afford it. Margins are low. And we go through these periods where we can't afford it. And then we start looking backwards. And we start looking at what we used to do and how we used to do things. And we start cutting costs. We start using things like anhydrous ammonia, which is the worst thing we could do for helping our soils. And we start using that. And then we go back to tillage because, oh, this no-till stuff just doesn't work. We're getting bad weeds. We're getting bad grasses. It doesn't occur to anybody that some of this is just our cropping practices itself. And farming isn't easy. It's like any job. They say, oh, the dumb farmer. Well, if you are a dumb farmer, then you're going to struggle. If you're a dumb anybody, you're going to have problems in life because there's a lot of learning that everybody has to do. And farmers are not immune to this. And I really take offense at that dumb farmer thing and everybody looking like hicks on all the ads and stuff. Farmers are using some of the most high-tech equipment there is on a daily basis. iPads running tractors. iPads sorting out what seed you have, where it's going in your planter, which row it's growing in. Seed cleaning because you're intercropping. I mean, all these things. Farmers are using really high-tech equipment right now. And because we have this high-tech equipment, we can make better use of it. We can actually start doing diversity that we couldn't even do before because now we can go between the rows and we know we can. Now we can fly crops on if we want. Now we can put fertilizer in field that we never thought we could before. We can put two things down at once. I mean, we have so much capability now that we need to use it to its full efficiency. And we can reduce the cost of production by using plants to do some of that. We don't have to graze them if we can't, that's fine. But we can use them to reduce some weed pressure. For sure we can. Right. Well, we got a lot of precision farming instruments out there now yeah. that can do so much that farmers haven't even got to the point where they understand what everything can be done, but they're getting there. <laughs> yeah, it's a steep learning curve, let's face it. Now that we're doing covers and we've got things in the ground year round, people are using their implements all the time. 
which doesn't give you the same huge amount of downtime to be reading up on how you make maps on your tractor or updating your computers all the time to make sure that you can look at those maps and then what do the maps mean and how do I layer them and what does all this mean? There's steep learning curves. I mean, you hear the complaint that, well, I don't have time marketing my crops and now you're marketing your crops, you're trying to figure out the maps on your tractor, you're trying to figure out how all these things go together. I mean, it's not an easy job. It's actually a really tough job. And you've got to bring all these pieces together. And on top of that, you probably have to be a mechanic. Right, exactly. Well, there's a lot of farmers still have a difficult time thinking they ought to spend their time behind a desk instead of sitting in the tractor seat, but makes them more money sitting behind the desk sometimes. Yeah, it does. Thinking is too often underrated. Right. Sometimes thinking is important. Right. We'll come right back to Frank and Jill Clapperton, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to Frank's conversation with Jill Clapperton, here's Frank with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Back in 2001, we asked uh, attendees at the National No-Tillage Conference what was the best management idea they had to share with others. And Jim Arnod from Moneta, Missouri, says his top cost-saving idea is fully capitalizing on the valuable nutrients found in poultry manure. The veteran no-tiller says manure provides cheap fertilizer and also boosts soil health. And since then, poultry manure decomposes and continues to feed the no-tilled corn crop throughout the growing season, Jim says you can often avoid the expensive cost of side-dressing nitrogen. Let's get back to the program now as Jill Clapperton talks about the connection between summer fallow and dust storms. One of the things, we look back at some of these old things like cover crops and companion crops, but one of the things we've kind of gotten away from is summer fallow, and no-till has helped that, and soil health has helped that. Can you elaborate on summer fallow a little? Yeah, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it used to be pretty popular in the Great Plains and Northern Plains. It's hard to believe. I mean, I could understand fallow in areas where people are trying to grow things on six and seven inches of moisture. And there would be times, and I still hear farmers when I talk to them about, let's try and get rid of that fallow. I will hear farmers tell me that that saved my farm. And it could have saved the farm 30 or 40 years ago, and that never comes out until a generation passes. And somebody's willing to have another go because they remember the day, the year, that they had moisture because they had a fallow. The problem I have is that you have a fallow, your soil structure is declining. If you're doing a plowed fallow, why? How can you conserve moisture by opening up your soil and letting it dry out and heat up? Like, I'm sorry, I guess I just don't have the logic for that. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Because we can put a thermometer on there, 
We can put moisture probes in the ground and everything says you're drying your ground out. But, but a lot of farmers are going to go, no, I am conserving moisture. So, okay. In my case, I'm just like, okay, you're just going to keep doing what you're doing and that's the way it is. Some people actually go and they test it and they put probes in the ground. They use the programs to get probes. They do this with the thermometer and they go, wow, like this really is hot. Or we see problems where we have dust storms and we're starting to have dust storms again because people are plowing again. I'm not sure why, but they are. And you start to get dust storms. Well, we have more people on this earth now than we used to. And there's more people around even rural communities than there used to be. And do farmers really think they're going to put up with dust storms? Right. No, they're not. And neither are their departments of ecology and environment. They're going to say, no, we want air quality. And we start looking at, from a medical perspective, you start looking at air quality. And in places where they're doing a lot of tillage and they're having a lot of dust, people have problems with their sinuses. They have breathing issues. They have lots of serious issues. They have a virus that they can't ever get rid of that sticks in their lungs, like in Arizona and through California and places where there's a lot of dust in the air. And yet we think that it's okay and wonder why people blame farmers. Well, now it's time to actually show some responsibility and say, yeah, agriculture has a problem there. When people die on the highways because of a dust storm, farmers are responsible. They are. And the only reason people put up with it is because they're trying to be nice to farmers. Well, it's going to end at some point. And we are going to have to take responsibility for some of it because not all farmers are creating dust. Some of them are not creating dust at all. And yet they're taking the fall for everyone else. Yeah, you go back 10, 15 years, some of this research out of California showed no-till dramatically cut particles and dust particles in the air. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Mitchell's work there was brilliant. And when you talk to the doctors now, Picina's Ranch in California has had two conferences, Health from the Ground Up where people working on soils and agriculture have met with physicians. And they were all shocked that we actually had the solution to rhinitis. And not only can we improve food quality, but we can improve air quality and we can improve water quality. We can be the solution if we want. Right. If we want. Right. We're not there yet. No, and I would rather that farmers decide they want to rather than get them legislated. Because there's a lot of people in policy that have no idea of the practicality of some of the things that they would have farmers implement. In one of the stories that we did about you, you talked about the importance of the top two inches of soil versus soil biological activity and fertility. Can you elaborate on those top two inches? I talk about that because when it comes to erosion from water and wind erosion, you're losing all your organic matter. Because if you think about it, what blows away first? You blow away all your light organic fraction. You even blow away biology. It blows in the wind or it runs off your field. And then what's left? Rocks, sand, the heavy particles, Mm -hmm. the stuff that doesn't grow much, the stuff that the fertilizer runs through that never holds anything so that we need more irrigation, we need more fertilizer, we need more of everything because... We don't have soil organic matter. The importance of the top two inches is that you want to always build on it and retain it so that in 10 years, your top two inches is your lower four to six inches because you built all this organic matter on top of it. 
Let's talk about rotations for a minute. You elaborated on it a little bit and uh, how we need more diverse rotations. Talk about cool and warm season grasses and the need for broadleafs, etc. What would be a, a good rotation to get to in a diverse way in maybe Illinois or Iowa for a no-tiller? For a no-tiller, using companions seeded pretty much at, you can either seed them first and put your corn in, depending on what you've grown. You have the opportunity to grow winter, like a winter cover. And I don't just mean rye, because too many guys are just like monoculture is just a thing. You can grow a mixture of broadleaf and grasses in your rotation in that winter cover, roll it down and seed right into it. Or you don't even have to roll it down. You can just seed right into it. And there are people doing both. And anybody who says it doesn't work needs to go and find somebody who makes it work and learn from them because there are lots of people in Illinois and Iowa that do this and they do it very successfully. So we know it can be done and maybe there's just a few techniques that we need to learn. And we know in Ohio as well. I mean, the Brants have been doing this for a long time sure. as well. And it's not that just they can do it. It means that everybody can do it. When drought hits, it's not going to be about your cover crops killing your crop. It's just going to be your crop dying from drought and heat. But what we usually see is that the people who have companions and have been in no-till last longer than the people who are not. And they might last long enough to get a rain and salvage something. Maybe not. But chances are they're going to at least give themselves another week or two over the conventional guy. And I think that's important and that's an opportunity. The other thing is, is that most no-tillers get on the ground a lot earlier. And people go, yeah, but that doesn't matter because it's cold. Well, yeah, but it also means that if you can hold moisture, it means that you can also start seeding your acres when the temperature is right. So your corn will come right out of the ground or your beans will come out of the ground. I mean, there are lots of ways to have diversity. Relay cropping has become a real reality in Iowa, and I suggest people go and have a look. I know Lawrence Steinloggy has had a number of field days showing people how he's been doing his relay cropping. I know that there's an organic farmer near there who grew corn in the middle of alfalfa field and had had a full stand of alfalfa under his corn. There are some really creative people that are really changing the face of agriculture in Iowa and Illinois. And really, it's just about people understanding how they do it and learning more about how to do it. And they're all willing to share. Everybody's willing to share. The one thing I love about farmers is that when they figure something out that really works, they're all willing to share how they did it. If you see something in a field and you want to know how somebody did that, they will happily show you how. Right, right. I remember years ago, a Farm Journal editor told me, he said, I don't understand these no-tillers. They got such a good thing going, and they get all this abuse from other people, but at the same time, they want to share everything they know and help these people who don't want to learn. There's that in every profession. There's always people who like to do the same thing over and over again. Right. And we need those people. I mean, everybody has their gifts and has the things that they're really good at. And it's about working together to use everybody's gifts for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Going back to fertilizer, where you're into this for a while, you're probably using less fertilizer, but different nutrients. Do you see this changing? Like we have a number of farmers who say, I'm getting by now with less phosphorus. 
I've always been able to get by with less phosphorus than everybody else. And I think it's just because I've been a little bit more adventurous in that direction. <laughs> Sulfur is one that people are not paying attention to enough in my book. And if we think about climate change right now, and we're talking about climate change and CO2. Well, a long time ago, actually not that long ago, there were probably two or three generations of farmers that never used sulfur in the East Coast and then coming farther West. Well, they didn't, because, have, they didn't have to no. because we had these coal-burning power plants. Right, and we had acid rain. Right. And it was full of sulfur. So nobody ever had to use sulfur. Now we have to use sulfur. And people have forgotten. I mean, they're like, well, I've always had enough sulfur. I've never looked at it. Well, no, we actually need sulfur. If we want to make protein, like you watch the protein declining in a lot of our cereals, it's because we don't use sulfur anymore. And sulfur is also a key component of all the enzymes and all the immune system in a plant. And if they don't have enough sulfur, they can't defend themselves properly. And so one of the things is, is I really believe people should be using more sulfur. Okay, people in the Midwest have these beautiful, deep, rich soils. And you can't be exporting micronutrients off your soils all the time and not be replacing them. You just can't. And most farmers are not going to give up their glyphosate. So then they need to be looking at manganese and they need to be adding micronutrients for sure. Plants are going to need it. So you need to be looking at your micronutrients and you need to be doing tissue tests and making sure they're adequate. You mentioned glyphosate. If it got banned, what would happen with our no-tillers? We'd be fine. We'd be using companion crops and cover crops and we'd adapt. And there'd always be people who would go back to tillage. There will. And there are people that will just go forward with their companions and their brown manures with something else. I mean, what did we do one year in Nebraska? We used oil, and then we used a, a different, I think it was gramoxin, a light coating of that, and we took down the rye crop and seeded a perfectly good corn crop in. There are other ways, but again, it's going to take thinking, and it's going to be adapting, and it's going to be change. Right. Are we going to be able to get away from controlling wheat with herbicides and do some mechanical things or cover crops or whatever? Well, there's certainly people doing it, and there have been right. people doing it for a long time. It's been interesting. A lot of the organic farmers are really embracing no-till because they've been cover cropping for a long time, and they've been using companions, so they already got that down, but they thought they had to till because that was the only way to feed the soil. And now that there's these really good rollers and there's ways to do rolling between the rows and stuff, now all of a sudden it's opened up a new world for them. Right. Well, I'm amazed with the organic people. We would run a roundtable at the no-till conference 10, 15 years ago, and 10 people would go to the roundtable, and we wouldn't run one today, and they're standing out in the halls. There'd be 150 people wanting to know about it. And we had a couple guys, two cousins from Ohio. They were going to organic no-till their whole farm of 1,800 acres. I don't know if they did it all, but that was kind of their goal to start. And Rich Clark down in Indiana has a huge percentage of his acreage already organic. People are excited about this. And it's about time. Right, right. Because, I mean, no-till organics has always been possible. And maybe at some point you might have to do a tillage operation. Maybe you have to do it every six or seven years. But so what? Right. Well, that's what I used to tell people when we started no-till in the 70s. And somebody would say, well, I'm going to have to do tillage after four or five years. And I used to say to them, sure, go ahead. Try no-till in the meantime. Now, most of those people after five years 
never went back to tillage, but if that's what they thought was going to happen, there's no reason to keep that from letting them try no-till. You've traveled the world. You've been to Australia. You've been to Africa. Are we going to be able to feed the world without more no-till or not? Farmers around the world will feed the world for perpetuity. They will. We know that we already overproduce food. And so I say to the young people who are like terrified that they're not going to have enough food when they grow up or their kids aren't going to have enough food, that it's politics. Farmers feed the world and farmers will always have enough food to feed the world. It's about food distribution and policy. I have seen fields of food plowed down in areas where they had no business being plowed down for political reasons. And if you're going to control a population of people, what do you do? Starve them? affect their water. I mean, we're in the age of COVID right now. If people are eating well, the chances of them surviving COVID are really good. If you have poor nutrition, you're going to struggle. So this is about, we need to pay attention to the quality of our food at the same time. And I think that's all coming together right now. People are really thinking about that. I mean, Jim Robb from Southern Kansas did a little study one time when he looked at the population of the world. This was two years ago and said, okay, this is the population of the world right now. And if I gave every man, woman, and child two pounds of corn a day for an entire year, how much corn would I need to produce? Well, that amount turned out to be the amount of corn produced in his county of Kansas. (laughs) Right. Wow. So are we short? No, we are not short. Right, right. So you left Lethbridge, you came down to the States. Tell us what's happened since you moved down here. Well, it's been really good because I started working as a consultant and I started working on, like actually as a consultant, being able to work on farms and ranches, understanding more of the practical aspects of it and putting my knowledge to practical use. And I think that has been the best part of what I've done. I always believe in public service, and I still do. I mean, I think that doing public good is really important and always thinking about the fact that you have the greater good in mind is the way I operate. I also operate in that I always believe that if I'm doing research, I need to be 20 years ahead of the time because that's the only way to be current when the landslide starts or the avalanche starts and everybody goes, oh, that's really important. And then all of a sudden the whole thing tips and you're like, wow, where is all that information? And only two or three people have it in the world because they were the ones that everybody shunned until the avalanche started. I've been working gradually and always in the back of my mind, I started this in Lethbridge, was looking at nutrient density and how do I improve nutrient density? How do I make a bushel of wheat something that everybody should eat? How do I make a bushel of corn something that's really good for you? Or beans, how do I get beans that have high oil content and that have the best oil content or have a really good protein And people go, well, protein is protein, but protein is not protein. Amino acids make up protein, and you can make protein with many different kinds of amino acids. And some amino acids are really useful for us, and others are not. And the percentage of the really good ones or the essential amino acids in a protein are more important than the ones that are not useful at all. And it's not that consumers have to think about that. But we as farmers need to think about that because can we produce food 
that actually is really good for us? And the answer is yes, we can. In the last few years, I've been working really hard at nutrient density. I've been working with handheld instruments that will help us determine things that are more in the field because the one thing I really struggled with was inaccuracy. Like as I was doing my experiments, I would send grain samples off to three different labs and get three quite different results at times, especially for the metals. I really determined for myself that tissue testing was more important because I also figured out during that time, the time I'd be in the U.S., that plants get what they want. If it's in the ground and they need it, they will get it because they have many means within their biochemistry in order to extract nutrients from the ground. They have symbionts like mycorrhiza. They can stimulate microbial communities that will liberate things for them. There's a lot of things they can do in response to their environment. We just have to make sure that their environment is such that they can actually use the tools at their disposal. And if we have good soil structure, then the chemicals that they exude from the roots will move far enough to actually make a change. They will increase the number of beneficial microbes in the rhizosphere to fend off disease. They will attract insect predating nematodes in to feed on insect larvae. Plants can do a lot of this stuff, but we need to facilitate them having the habitat in order to do it. Yeah. So you've got a lab or you've got a business in the Spokane area, right? Right. My office is in Spokane, Washington. What do you offer that Noltors could work with you on? Well, I also sit as a board member on the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association. Sure. And we have resources. I worked with the Spokane Conservation District, which has excellent resources. And not just for the people in Spokane County, but is a resource for anybody anywhere. You can always have access to a lot of the ideas and the things that they come up with. I think that really I'm working on a far more national in a global arena right now where I really offer people who are interested in regenerative agriculture anywhere in the world an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to change if they so desire. So one thing that's new I didn't know about is You're in Kansas, in the ranch. What's going on there? I'm working on a ranch in southwestern Kansas where we are transitioning the ranch into a more regenerative agriculture. We'll be fully integrating livestock. We'll be growing more forages. We'll be using forage cover crops in order to control weeds and diseases. We're working on wildlife habitat for lesser prairie chickens and quail. Because a lot of people believe that animals like livestock grazing is bad for wildlife. Well, it can be like anything. Like I could tell you that no-till is bad for the soil too in places because (laughs) there's no rotation. So the idea is to actually demonstrate how we can use all the tools at our disposal, intercropping, companion cropping, cover cropping, to control weeds, diseases, and pests and use livestock as a tool in that system. But we can also stack another enterprise onto that if we have cattle or we have a neighbor that have cattle or somebody who has cattle not very far away to be grazing our cover crops in an appropriate manner. And that's the first thing. I mean, we're going to be using strip grazing or high-density stock grazing and we're going to be moving cattle, and that's going to take extra resources. It is. We already know that, but we are primarily grazing And cropping is a smaller part of this ranch. But now it's about, well, what else can we do for cropping? Are there crops that we can grow that will make us more money? 
So on the small cropping acreage that we have, we can actually make more money with it. And we're already no-till, one of the few no-tillers in the area. So we're just going to stay that way, but we're going to ramp it up. Right. That's great. Well, Jill, we've been talking about an hour. Have I missed anything you'd like to talk about? I think that there is one thing that we didn't talk about, and that some of the things that I've spoken about, we need the USDA Risk Management Agency or the RMA to step up. I'm going to stand on my soapbox with you right now and say that, you know, (laughs) I'd really like the Risk Management Agency to step up and start insuring people for doing alternative practices and to keep up with the research and keep up with the innovators. Because I think in some ways, government policy, in particular, the risk management agency is holding people back. And we're still using old practices because young farmers can't get insured for new practices. Right. A couple of years back, people that weren't willing to use crop insurance if you exceeded cover crops. It was ridiculous. I've heard it. We need 20 years of data before we can change those practices. Well, I will tell you that in Saskatchewan, in Canada, that actually they're going to fully insure intercrops next year. And they're working with intercroppers and people who are doing this practices to come up with an insurance product that will insure them for these new practices. We need more people like that. We need more government agencies that are willing to look at their agriculture and go, how can we make this better and how can we work with farmers to make it better? Right. That's great. Well, I think this has been a fascinating hour. Our listeners are going to love it. Many of them have heard you speak at our meetings, so you're doing a lot of great good around the world, and I wish you more luck in the future. So thanks for doing this with us. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Frank. Talk to you later. All right. Have a good day. (laughs) Take care. Yeah, you too. You too. Be well. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Someone asked me in the last week or so if we had any humorous stories that took place at the National No-Tillage Conference. And I remember one a few years ago in Indianapolis. Well, it's more than a few years ago. It's probably 10 or 15 years ago. Anyway, a central Illinois no-tiller arrived at the hotel but couldn't find any information about the event. He didn't find our staff, didn't see any National No-Tillage Conference signs. The hotel staff didn't seem to have a clue about the event, and nobody was able to help him. He began to wonder if he was at the wrong hotel. As it turned out, he was in the right hotel, but unfortunately, he had arrived in Indianapolis a week early. He headed back home to central Illinois, then made the three-hour drive again the following week to Indianapolis to attend the conference. And I've never told anybody whose name it was. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Jill Clapperton for today's discussion. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. 
Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Nintel Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.